Hello, and welcome to the fourth and this year's final episode of a podcast series featuring the NIDDK's Urologic Diseases in America report. Join Drs. Brian Matlaga and Ryan C. as they share insights into diagnostics, therapeutic options, and treatment outcomes for urinary stone disease. Hello, my name is Brian Metlaga. I'm a professor of urology at Johns Hopkins University, and I also serve as one of the principal investigators for the Urologic Diseases in America project. And I'm very excited to be uh, speaking with you today uh, through this platform that this partnership uh, with the American Urological Association has provided us. And today what we'll be reviewing is uh, another uh, condition that we've studied in the Urologic Diseases in America project, this one being kidney stones. And uh, joining us on this podcast, I'm very excited to introduce uh, Dr. Ryan C., who's an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who uh, has also devoted his uh, both academic as well as clinical career to the treatment of patients with uh, urinary stone disease. And so, Ryan, I'm, you know, thank you for, uh, for joining on this podcast. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here and thank the AUA and the, the uh, Urologic Diseases in America Project for inviting me. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to be joining you. And um, what we'll do is probably over the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes, uh, we'll go through really the what we consider to be, uh, if you want to call them highlights or you know, kind of uh, important uh, aspects of what we found uh, when we looked through the kidney stones uh, data sets. And, and we looked at a number of data sets in this project. We looked at NHANES, which is the National uh, Health and Nutrition uh, Survey. We looked at um, Optum uh, Clinical uh, Data Mart, which is essentially a data set of um, privately insured individuals. So this represents, you know, really a working age population. Um, we also looked at a pediatric cohort via the Optum uh, data. And then uh, finally, we looked at the CMS data to understand uh, this condition in the over 65 years of age population and you know, essentially the Medicare population. And Ryan and I have uh, organized uh, our time together uh, really in what we think is, is somewhat of a logical fashion. So we'll go through you know, a, a sharing of uh, what we found looking at prevalence data. We'll explore a little bit of what we learned with regards to diagnostics, um, surgical therapeutics. One of the great things that we have now with uh, both Medicare Part D data, as well as using a data set such as um, the uh, Optum uh, private uh, payer data set is uh, we have pharmacologic data uh, or pharmaceutical utilization. Um, and so we'll also talk a little bit about pharmacotherapy uh, in the context of stone disease. Again, the nature of these data sets uh, is really, they're very powerful because they also provide us some longitudinal information. So we can begin to track how patients move through the healthcare system, which is important because there's, uh, as we all know, there's increasing emphasis on trying to understand what quality is in healthcare. And that's obviously a very complex discussion. But one of the ways we can begin to understand some aspects of quality and care is using longitudinal data via these large administrative, administrative data sets. And so we'll share some of our findings in that uh, with regards to um, outcomes. 
and then we'll try to you know, wrap it all together in terms of what we think, you know, kind of the, the message from uh, the uh, NIDDK's urologic diseases uh, in America project is going forward. So, um, uh, so I'll pause there and Ryan, what I'll, I'll ask you to do, if you can share with us, you know, some of the findings with regards to prevalence uh, rates that we've seen among the uh, stone forming patients. Yeah, certainly. Um, so using these three different um, um, data sets, we um, get a um, unique view from the NHANES data set on the prevalence. Um, as you know, that an NHANES data set is a self-reported uh, kidney stone. Um, and we looked at between years 2007 and 2012. And in the prior studies uh, before this, in the 1990s and early 2000s, we found that the prevalence of stone disease risen dramatically over that time period. But during 2007, 2012, it seems to have plateaued. So, um, um, and that, that plateau seems to be uh, very interesting. Um, when we look further into um, prevalence rates among men and women, um, we see a, a very stark difference than prior years. And here we see that among women, the prevalence dramatically increased from about 6.5 percent from 2007 to 2008 to about 8.9 percent from 2011 to 12, whereas in men the prevalence declined from about 11.5 percent to 8 percent in the same period. Um, and so this, this, these dramatic changes in prevalence, we're not quite sure what um, is the driving forces um, um, that explain this, but um, we suspect there may be in part um, related to the uh, changes in lifestyle, diet, uh, increase in overweight and obesity, especially among women uh, during the same period. Yeah, and you know, one other, um, you know, I think powerful aspect of the urologic diseases project is by having access to uh, you know, the private payer data, we can start to look at unique populations within that that we really have not had an ability to do previously. Um, and one of those is the pediatric population. Um, and, and I know because prior to my work with urologic diseases, I personally tried to get a, a better understanding of, um, uh, you know, what is the burden of uh, stone disease among the pediatric population. Just because clinically, you know, we were seeing more and more children with stones, and so we had a perception that, you know, there may be an increase in incidence and prevalence. Um, and what, what we found when I tried to look at this is that there's really um, not great, or at the time, there were not great data sets. You had things like the kids inpatient data set, but again, you know, as the name implies, that's inpatient uh, setting data. And as we all know, most stone uh, patients are treated not in an inpatient setting, but in an outpatient setting. And what the literature shows is there are well-done studies, but they tend to be either uh, single institution series uh, or from fairly specialized uh, centers, such as um, you know, freestanding children's hospitals. Um, and uh, there wasn't really a, a good set of data to um, uh, you know, try and understand what the burden of stone disease is among children. And so what we were able to do with the Urologic Diseases Project is um, leverage the uh, Optum uh, op Datamart, 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 Datamart cases and use that data set to try to uh, better understand what 
the burden of stone diseases among children. And what we found through these data is that, um, you know, we looked at the years uh, 2006 uh, up to about 2016. And what we found was that, um, you know, if we first looked at um, rates, you know, we saw that there was an increasing uh, number of children um, uh, with a diagnostic uh, code for, uh, or with a, a medical code for stone disease that rose up until around the year 2011 and then plateaued and started to decline to some extent. Um, but there was, you know, a fairly marked increase from uh, 2005, 2006 up to through 2011. The other thing that was very interesting is that when we broke the cohorts down both by age and gender, females consistently had a higher rate of uh, stone disease than did males. And this tended to be clustered in the uh, teen years. And then also um, uh, white enrollees had a higher rate than other uh, ethnic groups. Um, and so, you know, I think these data are uh, important because they do show us that there was a, an increase in, in the rates of um, stone disease among children, which, you know, seemed to have plateaued and stabilized and then started to decline as we moved into more recent years. And it also gave us, I think, more information on which populations may be at risk so that we can begin to, you know, focus some effort to better understanding why, you know, for example, in the teen years or, for example, in the female uh, gender, uh, how come, um, you know, we're seeing increased rates uh, among that population. Um, one other aspect um, that we can do if we move from um, prevalence into, you know, essentially diagnostics. And, and before I do that, I just wanted to ask Ryan, do you have any other thoughts on in the adult population, you know, kind of what, what particularly struck you um, uh, yeah, I mean, in looking I, at this prevalence? Yeah, we, we also um, able to look at uh, co uh, coexisting um, medical conditions. And we also saw that hypertension rates of hypertension and diabetes also um, increased over the same period. And so we understand that many of these chronic conditions have shared risk factors and uh, maybe the combination of these diet and lifestyle changes uh, across time may be contributing to both risk in adults and children. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's something, you know, and as we, you know, towards the end of this podcast, we'll come up with, you know, kind of, I think, our take-home messages, but as you're listening in, you know, I think one thing that, you know, by looking at large data sets, such as what urologic diseases can do, it can really identify new questions to ask, um, and that's something that I think, you know, both Ryan and I will be sharing, you know, as we review these data. Um, so, as we all know, um, kidney stones, uh, there is almost always going to be a diagnostic test uh, that's going to confirm the presence of a kidney stone, and it's going to be some form of a radiographic imaging study. And so with uh, claims data, which is essentially what we're using uh, with Medicare and with Optum, we can um, look at how um, uh, imaging testing is utilized among uh, patients uh, with kidney stones. And, and that's exactly what we did. And we, we wanted to understand, um, you know, if we broke the uh, imaging tests into different categories, you know, so we broke them into CT imaging, plain x-ray imaging, such as a KUB exam, ultrasound, 
uh, and then tests that we knew would be less commonly utilized, but still would be interesting to look at. And that would be things like intravenous pyelography and magnetic resonance imaging. And, uh, and we wanted to understand over time how or have practice patterns changed. And so as we looked at the imaging data, um, I was, you know, I think uh, both in Medicare and in Optum, you know, there are several striking findings. And uh, if we initially will restrict our discussion just to the adult population, and what we found was that CT imaging uh, for uh, both the working age population as well as the over 65 population, the Medicare cohort, CT imaging was uh, by far the most commonly utilized imaging study uh, for patients. Um, uh, with stone disease, uh, about um, uh, much greater than ultrasound, for example, is utilized almost twice as often, actually, as uh, ultrasound was. So, so really, in uh, the United States, CT imaging is the cornerstone or foundation imaging uh, test for stone formers. After CT imaging, the second most commonly utilized is actually plain radiography. It's not ultrasound. Ultrasound is the third most commonly utilized test, and um, all of the data we're sharing today, they reside in the uh, in a compendium, and that's available on the NIDDK's website. It's very easy to find. You can just put in a, in a browser search bar, NIDDK Urologic Diseases in America. It'll take you to the site, and there's an expanded compendium that presents all of these data and other data. But as you look at the uh, charts and uh, figures associated with imaging, you'll see the lines are, are really very flat. Um, CT imaging is the most commonly utilized, um, followed by plain radiography, followed by ultrasound, and um, it's not really changing over time. And, and that's probably disappointing to many of us um, because we know that uh, less exposure to ionizing radiation is better, um, you know, just as a principle. And uh, we know that, you know, at this point, there's likely overutilization of um, CT imaging for the diagnosis of stones. And there is effort spent on the part of the American Urological Association with you know, multiple educational initiatives, as well as other groups, you know, trying to uh, um, grow uh, providers' comfort with uh, ultrasound as an imaging modality. And, um, and we just haven't yet seen traction of it in the adult population. Um, and again, you know, we're using CT imaging twofold uh, greater than we are um, using ultrasound imaging. And now again, you know, our data um, stopped uh, in the mid uh, 2010s. And so, you know, as we uh, hope to, um, with urologic disease in America, look at more recent data, you know, one hope is that we may start to see an inflection point um, with uh, increased utilization of ultrasound. Now, as we talked about in the prevalence uh, discussion that we looked at the pediatric population, we also looked at the pediatric population when it came to diagnostics. And this was, I think, a, a little bit of a, a more happier story, if you will, or more satisfying story, meaning that we did actually see that although at the initial uh, years we studied, so in the mid-2000s, um, CT was uh, utilized quite commonly, ultrasound had a uh, very positive slope, meaning that uh, ultrasound was increased in utilization and eventually became more commonly utilized in CT. So, so in the pediatric cohorts, we are seeing um, a movement away from CT as the dominant imaging modality. Uh, and so, you know, our hope is that as, you know, further educational initiatives, um, training efforts uh, are uh, brought out to the urologic community, that we will see in the adult population perhaps a movement um, 
uh, away from CT towards ultrasound as a uh, as you know kind of the uh, more of a mainstay or staple um, diagnostic uh, modality. Um, and then moving from um, diagnostic to actual the therapeutics, uh, you know, Ryan, I'll ask you to share you know your thoughts on uh, the therapies for patients with Stone disease. Right. Yeah. And thanks, Brian. I, I think one of the values of uh, one of the things that we get from these types of claims-based data is we get a pretty confident um, uh, uh, estimate of the surgeries that are produced for kidney stone disease. As you know, um, primarily these are going to be shockwave lithotripsy, ureteroscopy, and percutaneous stone procedures. And overall, what, what we saw was that surgical procedures for kidney stone disease increased overall during this time period. Um, um, but the percentage of kidney stone patients undergoing surgery has declined. And so, and, and, and you know, we'll, we'll get to this later in that some patients will get second um, procedures or second stage procedures. And, um, you know, this, this may reflect also improved surgical outcomes, um, or it may re uh, reflect that perhaps that we are observing more stones than we used to. Um, and we also found that um, there was a trend towards more ambulatory surgery and ambulatory care. And among the ambulatory surgeries performed, there was an overall rise in ureteroscopy utilization and less reliance in shockwave lithotripsy. In fact, ureteroscopy has now become the dominant um, um, stone procedure overall. Um, and, and, and there may be different reasons for this. Uh, um, you know, as we know, the AUA guidelines um, um, include all three techniques, but ureteroscopy seems to be very versatile for most stone sizes and locations. And during the same time period, we know that there's been many improvements in technique, um, newer generation reader scopes, uh, newer lasers, um, advances in uh, baskets and other disposable tools and sheets. Um, we also um, found that percutaneous uh, nephrolithotomy was relatively a stable in utilization across um, um, these countries. So, um, not very, very uncommonly used, approximately 1% of all stone patients. Um, and as expected, most of these, um, the percutaneous nephrotomy procedures were performed in the patient setting. Um, we did start to see some uh, more and more ambulatory procedures performed. Although, again, this was the vast majority. Uh, were shocked with lithotripsy and ureteroscopy procedures. Yeah, and, and that's what really struck me as well, is that um, just the, how in the United States, especially as we compare it to other you know, healthcare systems across the globe, um, percutaneous nephrolithotomy is really a, a very seldomly performed procedure. And it gets back into, I know the group from Michigan has looked at this years ago of you know the idea that is there some even centralization or regionalization of um, uh, care when it comes to you know, that, the procedures such as percutaneous nephrolithotomy. And you know what we found when we look in the pediatric population was also uh, analogous to the adult population, um, that ureteroscopy was also the dominant um, form of surgical therapy. 
And I, you know, certainly was surprised by that. Um, you know, it's classic, almost dogma, you know, that we learn as we go through training that children tend to do very well, even perhaps better than adults when treated with shockwave lithotripsy. And certainly, um, you know, the AUA's uh, surgical manage management of stones guidelines document, when you look at the source data for it, that's, you know, was, was reinforced by those source data also. But when you actually look at what is the clinical practice, um, ureteroscopy is utilized uh, more commonly in um, that pediatric population. Um, and, uh, you know, you, it could be, as you said, Ryan, that, you know, as the technology has uh, increased, scopes are more miniaturized. Uh, and plus also that we know from prevalence that it tends to be um, a condition that manifests more commonly in the teenage years that, you know, it may be the smaller scopes plus larger uh, children may align better for ureteroscopy. But that was something in the pediatric population that, that certainly struck me. Um, the other therapy, um, besides surgical therapy, is obviously medical therapy. And, and as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the, the great thing of this um, uh, iteration of the Urologic Disease Project is that we had access to um, pharmacy uh, benefits information, or essentially pharmaceutical utilization in uh, the Medicare population and in the uh, Optum population. And so as we look at what pharmacotherapies are used for stone disease, I'll be clear there are some challenges uh, in that data set. For example, we know that certain agents like thiazide diuretics may be used for medical therapy, for example, for patients with hypercalciuria, but those agents are also used for uh, uh, as a blood pressure control agent. So we weren't really able to get data about some types of medical therapies um, associated with stone disease because there is you know, some contamination of the data. But we, there are other agents that we are able to get, especially when they're prescribed around the time of a stone event. And those agents that you know, I thought were particularly interesting as we looked at were uh, alpha blockers and then uh, opioid agents. And we'll talk about the alpha blockers first. And so our data went from 2006 up to uh, 2013. And what we found over that period is that corresponds to the time when there is emerging evidence that utilization of alpha blockers may promote the passage of certain ureteral stones. Now we know now at present based on two uh, well-performed randomized controlled trials, one from United States, one from United Kingdom, that really, um, you know, I, I think fairly convincingly have shown us that alpha blockers are not effective in medical expulsive therapy. But if we look at these data, this was in a time before those randomized controlled trials existed, we saw that there was progressive increase in utilization of alpha blocker uh, agents um, prescribed in the setting of a, a, a stone event. And so these were obviously agents that were utilized for, or likely agents that were used for um, medical expulsive therapy. Presumably, you know, if we were to now carry the data into 2020, we would see hopefully a decline in utilization, which again reflects, you know, what the clinical evidence tells us. But I think that's, you know, a very interesting question for the next um, uh, data review for the urologic diseases in America as we look at uh, stone disease again. Um, but I think the more striking uh, medication uh, agent that is prescribed in the setting of a uh, stone event is opioids. Obviously, no news to uh, any of us who live in the United States that there is a uh, opioid epidemic, if you want to term it that, but there's um, 
really uh, great um, uh, utilization of opioid agents uh, in a problematic way in this country. And uh, it's, it's made us turn our attention to just how are we using these agents in the treatment of patients with conditions such as Stone disease, where we know there is pain associated with it. And what we found is that opioids are by far the most commonly utilized agent for uh, adult stone formers, uh, both in the Medicare population, as well as in, in the Optum uh, population, the privately insured cohort. And it's a positive slope, unfortunately, in both groups that each year there's greater utilization of uh, opioid agents than there was in the year previous to it. And so this is obviously a very concerning trend, I think, to all of us in the urologic community. And it you know, really points out an area, and you know, again, we'll talk about this in the take-home message, but this is an area where probably we can take away some um, point from this that there's we should you know uh, there's a way to improve the care we're delivering to to move away from this really tremendous utilization of uh, opioid agents that we've found among stone formers. When we look at the pediatric population, again, the, the pediatric population hopefully is a bit of a bellwether in all of this because we do see that although there is high utilization of opioids in the pediatric population, that it has somewhat stabilized and maybe beginning to decline. So similar to how the pediatric population seems to have taken up the mantle of ultrasound as a diagnostic uh, earlier than in the adult population, um, you know, our hope is that uh, with this opioid, uh, um, that it's also, um, we start to see uh, trends away from utilization of these agents uh, among the stone formers. Um, I think then, you know, now this brings us to a good point. We've talked about diagnostics, we've talked about therapeutics, and then, you know, really the, the next discussion is what about outcomes of treatment? And uh, so, Brian, I'll, I'll let you share with what you found about treatment outcomes. Great. Um, you know, Brian, as you mentioned before, I think the value of these data sets is that we can uh, assess the effectiveness of kidney stone management over time. And so um, a couple points that I found interesting was that, um, that not only do people get diagnostics and treatment, but they get multiple episodes of tre treatment and care over time. So for example, you know, between 2009 and 2013, 70% of kidney stone patients had at least one imaging study, but um, up to 5% had 10 to 19 of these imaging studies. Um, another example is that about a third or 30% um, of patients between 2009 and 2013 had at least one ER visit, but many had more. 7% had two and 3% had three or more uh, ER visits. And so we get, we, we get to see um, uh, these trends and uh, potentially who is at risk. We also get data on, the, on retreatment rates. And we had talked about surgeries and procedures earlier. Um, but what we found that retreatment for um, kid, kidney stone procedures was most commonly observed after PCNL. Um, this, I think, was expected. Um, oftentimes, we do second-look procedures, and this is often planned um, after PCNL. And I think many people would get CT scans while patients are um, hospitalized overnight to look for residual fragments. But I think what was really striking about this data was that there were very high retreatment rates um, after shock with lithotripsy and ureteroscopy. And so for ureteroscopy, this was about 26% retreatment rate within 120 days. And this was about 32% for 
for your ureteroscopy within 120 days. Um, not, not quite sure what's driving these high retreatment rates. Uh, we, you know, we know that both uh, procedures uh, have residual fragments. Um, um, uh, there's a risk for that. And that the literature suggests that the outcomes of your ureteroscopy are superior than chocolate vitripsy. So we would have expected um, less retreatment for ureteroscopy. Um, and so this may be because that perhaps urologists are increasingly in, increasingly treating more complex stones through ureteroscopy for the reasons mentioned before, as it's a versatile procedure. Or maybe there's a publication by some prior studies, and, and this is the true, um, what we're really seeing in practice. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, um, that really captures, you know, the essence of it when we talk about the outcomes. And, you know, the, the great thing with these administrative data sets is we can begin to identify patterns, uh, such as what you just described. And then, you know, as we start to peel back the layers, um, you know, to try to then understand what do the patterns reflect. And, and you know, we lose some granularity and, and that, you know, then brings us to kind of the next set of questions, if you will, that can be answered. And, um, and you know, I think that's a, a very natural segue into, you know, kind of what, what our thoughts at least are some of the take home messages. And um, you know, I'm sure all, anyone who's listening will have other thoughts too. And, um, and I would encourage uh, anyone to go to the uh, NIDDK website to actually download the compendium. It's, it's just a large PDF, um, but it's really incredibly comprehensive and has way more data than you know, what we're able to share in a, in a 20 minute uh, podcast uh, episode. Um, and that's something I think that, you know, again, as, as I see the value of urologic diseases, one of its roles is to help identify what are the questions that we want to ask. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, Ryan, you, know, you and I can just go through a couple points. Um, yeah. You know, one thing that struck me, I'll just throw this out there to begin with, is that, you know, we're using uh, ionizing radiation um, to a really great extent uh, among stone formers. And, and that probably is an opportunity for uh, whether it's process improvement or care pathway improvement. Um, but, but some, you know, I would say that in an ideal world, something should shift and we should start to see increasing utilization of a modality such as ultrasound um, and perhaps decreasing utilization of something like CT. Um, Ryan, what, what would your thoughts be on, on another area of uh, interest yeah, that struck yeah. you? Um, I, I thought, uh, you know, this, the, the UDA um, data sets um, and, and this effort um, really helps shine the light on the, the burden of disease. And I think, um, you know, also in this data set that we didn't have a chance to mention is some of the costs. Um, uh, so, the, so not only the burden, the prevalence of disease, but also the cost burdens. Um, I also think that um, we, 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 we saw not only in the adult and pediatric population that there was a, a rise in the dominance of ureteroscopy over time over chocolate lithotripsy and, and, and percutaneous nephrolithotomy. Yeah, and that's you know really um, something that's uh, remarkable. And and then when you start to break it down into the other populations, you know, especially in the pediatric population, where really ureteroscopy has replaced shockwave as as the you know treatment of choice, it seems. Um, but yet that hasn't yet been reflected in the literature. And and it's just as you said, Ryan, you know, there may be a publication bias uh, towards that, or, or perhaps something else driving it. 
Um, you know, one other factor that struck me was the um, utilization of opioids. Um, you know, and this is likely a phenomenon of the United States. You know, I, I think if there's uh, international um, listeners, you know, this probably won't resonate as much. Um, but certainly to you know all urologists who practice in the United States. That we're, you know, there's a tremendous uh, util utilization, probably overutilization, to be honest, of uh, opioids for stone formers, um, and that's again, you know, an opportunity for care improvement, um, uh, you know, going forward. I also thought that it was interesting that we, the retreatment rates were really uh, much higher than I had expected, um, and I think what we're seeing is. Um, practice patterns and outcomes across the United States, not just at, you know, what we see in publications. And this is what's really happening in the real world, that up to a third of patients after you read and shock with you have a retreatment within 120 days. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, and, and so then, you know, we, we've kind of been discussing what you know, the, the urologic diseases project is a really tremendous project. It's, you know, very visionary by the NIDDK to support it. Um, and, you know, what are the goals of the project? And, and I think it's um, to really create, uh, one, an awareness of what is, as you termed it, the, the burden of, of disease. Um, and then also, what are opportunities where care can be improved, where questions can be asked? You know, it, it helps with some of the genesis of discovery in the field which ultimately you know, leads to improved outcomes for our patients. And, um, and I think that you know, we've highlighted just a couple of areas and it's really you know, very much scratching the surface of areas that could inform um, you know, future projects, uh, grant proposals, um, you know, that are really going to have meaningful changes to you know, actually how care is being delivered, not at expert centers of excellence, which just tends to be what we see in publications, but rather at um, you know, really what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis in the, the urologic community with, with regards to treatment. And, you know, one of my goals with urologic diseases in America is to have this serve as, you know, essentially the reference point for that um, scope of the problem question that always comes up in a, in a grant application. And so, um, you know, I think that as, uh, you know, as the listeners, hopefully you go to the compendium and, you know, kind of peel back a few more layers of the project. You can see what those data are and what opportunities for questions exist. Um, I, I'd like to, before I close it out, Ryan, do you have any other closing thoughts? No, uh, Brian, thank you for including me. I think, uh, you know, this, this really motivates me to, to think of other projects and, 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 and um, to, to address some of these treatment gaps. So uh, thank you for including me. Yeah, and, and Ryan, thank you very much for, for being a part uh, of this project. It's uh, been a, a great opportunity to work with you. And, um, you know, I'd, of course, you know, like to thank um, uh, Dr. Kevin Abbott, Dr. Zia Kirkali, Dr. Tamara Bevendam from um, the uh, NIDDK, who, um, you know, have uh, supported with their uh, leadership and vision uh, this project. And um, uh, Lydia Feinstein, Julia Ward from um, Social Scientific Systems, who provided um, you know all the analytic support for uh, for this project. Um, you know, it's obviously a, a a large heavy lift, and there's lots of people that worked on it. And then, of course, you know, I think one of the great successes um, in the the past year with the Urologic Diseases in America project is our partnership with the American Urological Association uh, in supporting our efforts to disseminate these findings. You know, to to really broadcast them to the urologic community through 
podcasts and uh, you know forums at various meetings, and that's something that the uh, American Neurological Association has been a, a tremendous partner with uh, with us for. And so, I just want to thank the, the UA for that. And I hope this was a uh, informative twenty or so minutes that you uh, spent with us. And um, again, um, you know, if there's questions or interest from this, uh, I would encourage you to go to the NIDDK website. Uh, look at the compendia for this for your, for uh, stone disease as well as BPA, urinary incontinence, you know the other conditions we've discussed through prior uh, podcasts, and then there'll be other urologic conditions coming to that website as well. So um, again, it's easy to find uh, just on any search bar if you type in NADDK urologic diseases in America, it'll be the first link that pops up. So thank you again for joining us, and I hope this was informative.